Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadika. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is part three of a three-part series of our group learning program. We've just restarted this a few weeks ago, and I'm going through an overview of the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment. And by doing this overview and separating it into three separate classes, we can actually dive really deeply into each section of the Eightfold Path. So today we're exploring the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. Previously, we explored the section that was titled Wisdom. Then last week we did the Moral Conduct and today we're exploring the Mental Discipline. All of this is in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is the book that's guiding us in this program. And we're going to be starting from chapter one about two weeks from now because we have one more class next week, which is part of this overview. But then we're going to be starting at chapter one. So you can download this book by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. It's completely free. You can use that version if you like. Or you can then take that and print it if you'd like a printed copy. You can also order printed copies through Amazon or a Kindle version. But you're going to need a version of this book in order to deeply learn and understand the teachings of the Buddha and work towards awakening the mind to enlightenment, where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So thank you all for joining today. We're going to go forward into our class and discussing the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. This is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And as we go, as I've shared in previous classes, I'm not interested in students ever believing anything that I share or anything that the Buddha shared. So it's important that you learn, you reflect, and then you practice the teachings. In this class, we can do the learning. I can share the content with you. And then I can help you with starting to do your reflection and kind of giving you some ways to think about the teachings. And then as you do that, you might decide to do some more of that on your own in order to independently verify the teachings. But then as you move them into practice, that's where you're actually going to really see the improvement to the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. And that's why you're not interested in believing what I have to share, but learning, reflecting, and practicing, you can see this discontentedness gradually diminish, where the anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, and other discontent feelings is gradually diminished. The mental discipline aspect of the Eightfold Path is a very important part of this path. Each step of the Eightfold Path is utterly important, and it would be important for students to understand this inside and out and backwards and forwards. And that's not going to happen in just one session. So we're actually going to be covering the Eightfold Path 
in chapter five as well as part of this book. And you have this book to refer back to. So as you're learning these teachings and you're bringing your practice closer and closer to what the Buddha taught as part of the Eightfold Path, and you're having challenges and you're having missteps, you have the book, you have the videos, you have the online classes, you have posting in Facebook, you have reaching out to me through personal messages, you can schedule personal discussions with me either online or in person here in Chiang Mai, and I'm able to help you as you need clarity on any of these teachings. So let's talk about right effort as part of the Eightfold Path. This is the sixth step of the Eightfold Path. I'm going to read to you the words of the Buddha, and then I'll break it down for you so that you can understand it in more detail. So the Eightfold Path, step six, is right effort. And the Buddha shares, in what monks is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So these are the words of the Buddha and what he spoke during his lifetime, but I'm going to share with you this in a more summarized version, which will help you to be able to understand how this is broken down. Essentially what he's talking about is four different aspects of right effort. The first one is to prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising in the mind. Okay, so this is any unwholesome mental states that are not currently in the mind, you apply the effort to not allow them to come into the mind. This is part of this step. And as part of the Buddhist teachings, he's going to share with you what are the unwholesome mental states and what are the wholesome mental states as you progress on this path. But just to give you an example of something that most likely isn't in your mind right now, and this particular aspect of right effort is to prevent this unwholesome mental state from ever arising in the mind. You probably aren't thinking about killing another human being. Maybe you've thought about it in joking terms, but you've never really been serious about that. And what the Buddha is saying is, okay, of course, killing another human being is an unwholesome mental state that would have to have a certain amount of anger and hatred and ill will. So prevent that from ever coming into the mind. The second one is abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. So let me give you some examples of those. These are any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. The Buddha is sharing, take the effort to abandon those and eliminate them from the mind. So if you're in an existing relationship with somebody or you have been in the past and you observe that there's craving for sexual contact with somebody else outside of your relationship, you know that's going to cause damage in your relationship and 
what you've got going on in your life. So you would abandon this unwholesome mental state whenever it arises in the mind with it currently being in the mind and you observing that, then you apply the right effort to abandon that craving whenever you observe that it's in the mind. Or if you have anger or frustration or irritation arising up in the mind, when you observe that in the mind, you apply the effort to abandon that because you know it's an unwholesome mental state. So these are the first two. The first one is prevent any unwholesome mental states that are not currently in the mind from arising. The second one is any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, abandon those and eliminate them out of the mind, taking the effort to do that. The third one is produce unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. So this is any wholesome mental states that you learn that are currently not in the mind, apply the effort to arise those, bring them into the mind. So things that you'll learn along this path is generosity is a very important aspect of this path, practicing giving and sharing. This helps to eliminate selfishness. It also helps to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So if you know that you're currently not a very generous person, then what the Buddha is saying is take the effort to arise this into the mind so that now you can practice generosity in your daily life. Compassion might be another example. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. If you notice that you're pretty indifferent when you see the difficulties and struggles that other people face, and you're just like, ah, yeah, whatever, you know, that's them, it's not me, who cares? If there's this indifference in the mind, this isn't going to produce enlightenment and allow you to function as an enlightened being where there's concern for the misfortune of others. So if you know that you're fairly indifferent when you see the struggles and difficulties of others, then you would work to apply the effort to arise this wholesome mental state of compassion. And then there's this fourth aspect of right effort, which is maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So if there's currently certain wholesome mental states that are in the mind, the Buddha is saying, okay, support those, encourage those, don't allow them to fade. Loving kindness might be an example of that. If you have loving kindness where the mind has this active goodwill for other beings, or if you have this genuine interest in seeing other beings be well, then if this is currently in the mind, the Buddha is saying, you know, bring that into the mind some more and really allow it to permeate in the mind. And of course, we have methods with loving kindness meditation and other things to allow that to happen. Another example might be sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is the antidote for jealousy. What sympathetic joy is, is having joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So if you currently notice that there's a little bit of joy when you see someone else being successful in whatever parts of life that they're successful in, well, the Buddha is saying, take the effort to continue to support that, encourage that, allow that to continue to grow in the mind. And these are just examples that I'm providing here. You might actually have generosity in the mind. You might currently have compassion. Maybe what you're struggling with is sympathetic joy or loving kindness or something else. So these are just examples to help illustrate what these four aspects of right effort are. The first one is prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen in the mind from arising. The second one is any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, abandon those and eliminate them. 
The third one is any wholesome mental states that are not currently in the mind, produce those wholesome mental states, bring them into the mind and take the effort to do that. And the fourth one is any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, support those, encourage those, don't allow them to fade. One of the ways that I explain this to my son is essentially kick out the unwholesome stuff and bring in the wholesome stuff. That's essentially what right effort's all about and taking the effort to do that. And the Buddha is explaining it in four different aspects. And you're going to need this as part of your mental discipline because as you hear the other steps that we're going to talk about today, as part of the Eightfold Path is when you're practicing those other steps, you're going to observe certain unwholesome qualities and certain wholesome qualities that are in the mind. And this path to enlightenment is purifying the mind, essentially helping you to clear out all the clutter and the pollution essentially helping you to become a better human being. And it's going to take effort to do that. So you need to take the right effort to eliminate the unwholesome and arise the wholesome. And without this step, you wouldn't be able to take action to actually bring the wholesome in and eliminate the unwholesome. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about right effort. The way that you'll ask questions is you'll put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hello, teacher David. Curious to ask if a practitioner um, notices, like they know that they don't have these wholesome qualities in the mind and they, they, can, they can sense some unwholesome ones, creeping creeping in uh, do you suggest that they fake it until they make it well, sympathetic joy something like that um say the practitioner knows like yeah they, they kind of feel a little jealous about something or they didn't like someone getting promoted something like this but they know that they're trying to cultivate sympathetic joy do you suggest that even though they're not feeling it in the moment maybe they say to that person Good job. Congratulations. Is that a way to overcome it? Yeah, it is. Because what you're doing is you're kind of rewiring the mind as part of this path to enlightenment. So using your example, Nick, you know, if somebody gets a new house or a new job or a promotion at work and someone shares that with us, if we have jealousy in the mind, we're used to hearing those things and we go down this path of jealousy, this well-worn path where we've beaten down all the bushes, gotten back all the thorns and the grass is gone. It's just this well-worn path of dirt that we've just kept going down this path of jealousy whenever we hear what's going on with somebody else. This jealousy arises. What you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're kind of getting out your machete and you're forging this new path and you're breaking down the bushes and the thorns and you're trying to create this new pathway that when you hear somebody have something beneficial happen for their life, that instead of going down this well-worn path of jealousy, you go down this path of sympathetic joy where now you have joy for their success. And this is where the real struggle and the real challenges come in for rewiring the mind and going down this path and getting rid of all this bushes and these thorns. But as you do what you're saying is maybe fake it till you make it, where you just say, oh, oh, congratulations, I'm very pleased to hear you've got that promotion. Even if you applied for the same thing, you just say it, you try to get in the habit of doing that, you're rewiring the mind, you're knocking down these thorns and these bushes, you're trying to forge this new path. And as you're forging this new path, 
this old path of jealousy gets overgrown. The grass grows back, the bushes grow back, the thorns go back. And the more and more that you practice having this sympathetic joy where you're joyful for other people's success, this new pathway gets worn down more and more and more and it becomes easier and easier for you to walk down that path. And this path of jealousy gets overgrown and the mind's not interested in going down that path anymore because you've got this well-worn path of having sympathetic joy now. So in that transition, you may feel some jealousy, but you can at least put the words together to wish this person well and let them know that you're pleased for their success. And that's helping to rewire the mind and get comfortable going down this new path and forging this new path. I see. And in the same example, would you even something as simple as forcing a smile? It might not be simple in the moment if you're feeling jealousy, but forcing a smile. Yeah, because the mind's going to be holding on to this resentment, this hostility, this bitterness. It just wants to stay in the darkness. The last thing that a wild animal wants is to be tamed. And your unenlightened mind is like a wild animal. It doesn't want to be tamed. So there's this body, there's this mind, and then there's the person, which is the combination of the body and the mind. So the mind being this third entity that the person is trying to train It wants to stay in the darkness and wants to be disgruntled and bitter and have animosity. So if you can just kind of get the mind to at least produce a smile in the body, then this is a step in the right direction. This is kind of looking in the right direction and starting to make that pathway, that new pathway. And that's why it takes effort and it might hurt. It might actually feel some you know, painful feelings as you're starting to go down this path because the mind is holding on. It, this unenlightened mind doesn't want to let go and you're kind of trying to move it in the direction of getting out of the darkness and walking towards the light. And as you face those challenges and those struggles, the Buddha explains, you know, don't shrink back from the struggle because the mind wants to keep walking down this well-worn path of jealousy or resentment. It doesn't want to make this new path because it wants to be complacent and keep going down this path of jealousy and resentfulness and animosity. But that's why you need to have this energy and apply this effort to forge this new path. And that requires that you put forth the effort to do that. And that's why you see here that the Buddha uses this sixth step to say, you know, we have to apply this right effort to actively eliminate the unwholesome and arise the wholesome. That's not going to happen automatically. You actually have to do something to make it occur. And that's normal for for the in the unenlightened state to, to feel these bad things. Um, we shouldn't look down on ourselves. Is that is that correct? Because um, you know, just thinking, oh, like why am I why am I having these unwholesome thoughts? You know, something like this. Yeah, what I encourage people to understand is that if you're encountering these teachings and you're learning these teachings, you're in the process of moving to enlightenment is don't look down at yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't think that you're a bad person. You're miserable or horrible. But we didn't grow up with these teachings. You know, these teachings aren't permeating in our culture with millions and millions of people understanding these teachings. So now that we're 30, 40, 50, however old, even, you know, 20 years old or 80 years old, 60 years old, as we've now become aware of these teachings and we're starting to learn like, oh, wow, like 
we can train our mind and this is like a really important aspect of life and ensuring that we bring this training into the mind the mind in the unenlightened state just hasn't been trained it's polluted it has this pollution or these taints but it doesn't mean we're a bad person Anybody who's on the path to enlightenment is aspiring to become a better human being, but we just don't know how to do that because we lack the wisdom in the unenlightened state. And what the Buddha is doing is providing the wisdom of how to do that. So where you see you're struggling and you're having unwholesome thoughts, rather than think you're horrible or you're no good or all these deflating and diminishing thoughts, just be thankful that you've now encountered the Buddha's teachings and you're starting to gain this wisdom and Just recognize it as an untrained mind that you've lacked the wisdom, you've lacked the moral conduct, and you've lacked this mental discipline your whole life. And that's why you've encountered certain struggles that you have. But now you're on this path to improve all of that. And that's not going to happen in the snap of a finger. It's going to take gradual training, gradual practice, and you'll experience gradual progress as a result. So rather than go to those diminishing, deflating, negative self-talk in the mind, think about, oh, wow, well, at least I know that that's unwholesome. Because at a certain time in our life, we might have thought our jealousy was justified. And we felt really good about that jealousy. And we thought that that's maybe what love is all about, or that's what it, you know, in terms of a relationship, if we were jealous in a relationship, maybe we thought that was the love, that we were jealous because we love this person. But that's part of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality, that we don't understand that. So now, if you understand, you know, five years later, 10 years later, that that jealousy has been leading to difficult situations, even though now the mind is still jealous, at least now you have what the Buddha called moral wrongdoing, is that you understand the wholesome and unwholesome. This is moral wrongdoing, that you understand what is wholesome and you're starting to understand what is unwholesome. And then coupled with moral wrongdoing, the Buddha talked about something called moral concern. What moral concern is, is that you have the concern and the interest, the aspiration to do wholesome things. So in other parts of our life, we didn't necessarily know what was morally wholesome and unwholesome. And we might not have even had the moral concern of being interested to improve our life. We might have just been walking through the forest, knocking down trees and burning up the forest. We didn't care what was wholesome or unwholesome. We didn't care who we affected and who we didn't affect, perhaps depending on how our life progressed at different times in our life. But now if you have that moral wrongdoing where you're starting to see what's wholesome and unwholesome and you have the moral concern, which is the interest and the goal to improve, then you're in a better position now than you were 5, 10, 15 years ago. So rather than be deflating and diminishing yourself for having these jealous thoughts, at least understand that, wow, at least I have this moral wrongdoing. I have this moral concern. I know what's wholesome and unwholesome, and I have the concern and interest to improve that. Thank you, Venerable Sir. We have a question from Parikshit. He writes, Venerable Teacher, is equanimity also a wholesome state in the right effort, like loving kindness and sympathetic joy? Yes, there's many wholesome mental qualities that you need to cultivate as part of this path. These are just a couple that I used as just examples. But yes, equanimity, it's part of the four healthy mental states. A lot of people refer to those as Brahma Viharas. We're going to discuss those as part of chapter 14 in this group learning program. So we'll be discussing all of those and equanimity is one of them. 
Let's go to Miranda. Yes, hello, sir. Good evening. I guess my question is more of clarification with compassion <clears throat> is concern for the well-being of others. And something that the mind found confusing earlier on, and I think others probably do too, what is the difference between having concern and having worry? Okay, so if there's worry in the mind, this is discontentedness. This is caused by craving, desire, attachment, because if the mind is craving or desiring a certain thing or a certain outcome, then the mind's going to be worried. It's going to have anxiety. It's going to be shaken up. It's going to have this restless state of mind because the mind's worried. But when there is no craving, desire, attachment, we can actually have concern for the misfortune of others while the mind is stable and peaceful and content and joyful. So it's a difference of having this craving, desire, attachment, wanting a certain outcome, that's going to produce worry, where when there is no craving, desire, attachment, we can just have concern for the misfortune of others. And there the mind can continue to remain content. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. There appears to be no more questions. All right. So let's move to the next step of the Eightfold Path, which is right mindfulness. This is a really important step to understand and is something that we talk a lot about in modern times. We use this word mindfulness a lot. So I'm going to explain to you how the Buddha describes mindfulness, and then I'll help you understand how people are maybe using it in today's society, which can oftentimes be confusing if you hear other people using the word mindfulness in a certain way. So let me first help you understand what the Buddha shared in terms of mindfulness. He says here in the Eightfold Path, in what monks is right mindfulness? And remember, you can think about this word monks as students, even though he was talking to monks, it's addressed to anybody who's on the path to enlightenment. Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So this next part of what I'm sharing is kind of a summary to help you understand what the Buddha was explaining there. Just like I did with right effort, I created this slide to help you understand what the Buddha is describing. What he's describing is the four foundations of mindfulness. But what I generally teach students very early on on the path to enlightenment at this point is to understand right mindfulness as awareness of mind. Awareness of mind helps you to understand what mindfulness is because if you're going to progress on this path to enlightenment purifying the mind you need to have awareness of the mind you need to have awareness of those unwholesome qualities in order to apply right effort and you need to have awareness of those wholesome qualities that are in the mind in order to produce right effort and bring those wholesome qualities more and more into the mind so you can think of right mindfulness as just awareness of mind that's a really good general way to think about it for now oftentimes what you'll hear people use this word mindfulness as is they might say you know 
David, can you mindfully carry this glass to the table? And what they're really saying, in my experience, is they're saying, can you carefully carry this glass to the table? So you hear lots and lots of people using the word mindfulness, but they're not necessarily using it in the way that the Buddha intended it for his path. So what other people choose to say and how they choose to use it is up to them. But for you, when you use the word mindfulness and when you think about mindfulness as part of this path, it's important that you understand it as awareness of mind and more specifically, the four foundations of mindfulness. An enlightened being and someone moving to enlightenment, they're not going to be a follower. They're not going to follow the masses. So there are certain things that you'll see that are being done or talked about or discussed or practiced in the masses that as someone who's on the path to enlightenment, you might choose to not do those things. And that's you rising above and letting go of the world. That thing that the Buddha was talking about of letting go of this craving for the world, essentially this worry and holding on to the world. You need to let go of the world and realize that there's lots and lots and lots of beings doing things that are harmful to themselves and others, but your path to enlightenment is about rising above that murkiness and no longer choosing to do that. So where you hear people using this word mindfulness and they may be using it in a different way than what we use it in the Buddhist teachings, that's up to them. But as long as you understand awareness of mind, that's what you would like to get to, where you have this awareness of what's going on in the mind. And you're producing this and you're cultivating this and developing this through your meditation practice. What I taught on breathing mindfulness meditation as part of this program Breathing mindfulness meditation is where you're arising this awareness of mind so that you're aware of the breath and you start building this concentration of the breath and you're aware when the mind is off the breath and then we let that go and bring it back to the breath. So you're developing this mindfulness as part of breathing mindfulness meditation and then you use that as part of your daily life, that in your daily life, as you're driving in a car and you're in a business meeting, as you're walking down the street, talking to your friend on the phone, as you're eating food by yourself, you always practice awareness of mind where you're aware of what's going on in the mind and where you're aware of these unwholesome qualities, you take the effort to let those go and eliminate them. And where you're aware of the wholesome qualities, you bring those into the mind and support those and encourage those. Don't allow those to fade. More specifically, what the Buddha is describing here is part of right mindfulness is the four foundations of mindfulness. This is where he says body is body, feeling is feelings, mind is mind, and mental objects is mental objects. What body is body is, is having awareness of the bodily sensations and having awareness of the feelings and having awareness of the condition of the mind and having awareness of mental objects. Essentially what he's describing to you here is the life cycle or the process that the mind goes through whenever discontentedness is arising in the mind. When the mind experiences anger or frustration or guilt or shame or shyness or boredom or loneliness, even happiness, excitement, elation, there's going to be some bodily sensation that you experience. 
When I used to experience anger, I would feel this heat or these pins and needles starting at the feet and moving all the way up through the body into the chest. And then the head got really, really hot, almost like it was going to explode. This was anger arising and there's certain bodily sensations that you're going to feel and they're going to be unique to you. You know, with anger for me, I just described what I used to experience, but for you, it might be something different. Or if you're shy, you might experience butterflies in the stomach. Or if you experience stress, you might feel tension in the neck and the shoulders. Everybody's a little bit different, but you need to start becoming aware with mindfulness of these bodily sensations that are happening before the mind experiences these feelings of discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Because if you can be aware of these bodily sensations that are arising, then you can cut off the discontentedness and let it go there. And it never comes into the mind as feelings and it never actually pollutes the mind with these feelings. If you can gain the ability to have this awareness of mind of these bodily sensations, you're going to save yourself a whole lot of trouble because that anger, that frustration or that guilt or shame or boredom or loneliness and even those conditioned happiness and thrill, euphoria, that conditioned feeling isn't going to come into the mind and now affect the feelings and have these feelings that you're now dealing with. But if you don't catch it at the bodily sensations and it does become feelings, well, now you can still cut it off there. When you start experiencing these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, you can cut it off there as feelings. But if you don't cut it off as feelings, it's then going to affect the condition of the mind for the next few hours or the next few days or maybe weeks. You've experienced this, I'm sure, where there's been something that's happened anger has arose, you missed it as a bodily sensation, you may not even been aware that those were actually there. The anger became these feelings in the mind. And now for many hours or many days or maybe a week or so, the mind was affected. The condition of the mind was affected by this situation. And then what happens is we form these mental objects. These mental objects are like containers of something like ill will or complacency or central desire, things like this. And our mind and our experiences in life, we've been going through this all throughout our life, but we haven't necessarily been aware of it. And that's why the mind keeps getting conditioned to experience these discontent feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant over and over and over again. When we were a child growing up, there was something that occurred. We experienced certain bodily sensations as frustration was arising. It became feelings in the mind. It affected the condition of the mind. And we started forming this mental object or this container. And then something else happened. Same thing. We were completely unaware of true reality of these bodily sensations, of these feelings, this condition of mind. And we kept filling up this mental object of something like ill will. And we've been going through this throughout our whole life and this container of ill will has been getting filled up more and more and more. Well, now with the wisdom of the Buddha and becoming aware of what's happening in the mind, the Buddha is explaining to you that all of this process of discontentedness in these mental objects, these containers of harboring something like ill will or hatred, this is all 
can be circumvented. This can all be cleared out. The mind can be purified, but you have to be aware of the bodily sensations. You need to develop the awareness that prior to the mind experiencing discontentedness, there's these bodily sensations that are arising before the discontentedness comes into feelings in the mind. And if you can gain the ability to have awareness of these bodily sensations, and you're doing your breathing mindfulness meditation to train the mind to cut off and let go of thoughts and things that are coming into the mind, then that means when you become aware of the bodily sensation starting to arise, you can cut it off and let it go there. So it never becomes a feeling in the mind. And then you can just train more and more and more through meditation and through your daily life that when you see these bodily sensations occurring based on pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, that you keep cutting it off and letting it go, cutting it off, letting it go, cutting it off and letting it go. So you're no longer feeding this mental object of something like ill will. You're basically kind of putting a roadblock in the way that any time discontentedness is trying to come into the mind, you're cutting it off and letting it go, cutting it off and letting it go, cutting it off and letting it go. And then at the same time that you're doing that, you're working on uprooting these mental objects through training the mind in the Buddhist teachings. And he gives you solutions for these mental objects. And he explains to you what these mental objects are as part of his path. And then he gives you the solution of how to uproot them. And this is how you actually purify the mind by gaining this discipline that you have such awareness of the mind that you can observe these bodily sensations arising and you can cut them off and let them go, cut them off and let them go. You're no longer feeding these mental objects. But because your mind isn't that well trained right now, you're going to still experience these bodily sensations. You're not going to be able to immediately cut off every single one of those. It's going to become feelings in the mind. You can observe that. Then you can observe how it affects the condition of the mind for a few hours or a few days or so. And then you can observe these mental objects. And this is how you don't believe the Buddhist teachings, but you independently verify them. You can see this process. And the more clearly that you see this process and you start gaining control or discipline of the mind through meditation, then you can get more and more ahead of this curve where you start observing the bodily sensations and you can more easily cut it off right there. But if you don't get it there, try to cut it off as feelings. If you don't get it there, try to cut it off as a condition of the mind while you're working on uprooting these mental objects with the various teachings that the Buddha is sharing for you. And as you gradually train the mind and you progress in your practice, you'll become more and more aware of this whole process and you'll be able to cut off and let go of these discontentedness as bodily sensations. The Buddha shares that somebody who is aware of the bodily sensations and can cut off and let go of them there at that point without it becoming feelings in the mind he says this person is near to enlightenment. They're essentially getting close to enlightenment. So as you observe your practice, getting more and more refined that you can observe these bodily sensations and you're easily able to cut them off and let them go, that's what is going to help you get ahead of the curve. And then eventually what this does is it eliminates the craving, desire, attachments in the mind and you get to a point where you've cut off and let go of the bodily sensations so many times, and you've uprooted these mental objects, 
that now when various things happen in your life, you don't even experience the bodily sensations anymore. There is no arising of any discontentedness because all the craving, desire, attachment has been uprooted. So you'll go through a significant period of time where you'll observe these arisings and you'll need to cut them off and let them go. And what you're doing here is working on eliminating craving, desire, attachment. But once the mind is purified, you won't experience even the arising of bodily sensations in certain situations. This is how you know that your practice is improving because certain things that you experienced, which once arose this intense anger, where there was bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, all this discontentedness and shaking up of the mind, then it becomes frustration, then it becomes irritation, then there's kind of an annoyance, and then the same thing happens over multiple situations, and then you just don't feel anything at all. You just notice like, wow, the mind's really peaceful. This same exact thing just happened that once arose so much anger in the mind, and now the mind is just completely peaceful. And this is how you know the mind is progressing closer and closer to enlightenment. But to do that, you've got to develop this mindfulness or awareness of mind and start to learn and observe how the mind experiences these bodily sensations, which then become feelings in the mind. It then those feelings affect the condition of the mind more kind of short term. And then there's this long term thing of the mental object, like something like sensual desire, complacency, or ill will that's more deeply embedded in the mind. And that's why it takes more work to uproot that. But the Buddhist teachings will teach you how to do that. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. General teacher, I was wondering if you'd be so kind as to give an example of condition of the mind. Sure. If you had a certain situation, say you came out and you saw the scratch on the car. That's a common one that I use, right? You came out and saw the scratch in the car. Bodily sensations come up in the body. It becomes feelings in the mind. You're angered. You're really frustrated. And maybe you even talk to the person who scratched your car. They might have even agreed to pay for it. Their insurance might have taken care of it. But now for many hours, for a few days, maybe even a week or two, the mind is just angered and frustrated about this whole experience because it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. It has this craving and desire to keep the car looking pristine. It craves permanence. And now because these feelings have arisen, even though the problem has been handled, the condition of the mind is such that it's still angered or frustrated or irritated about this whole situation. You know, you've got to talk to the insurance company. You've got to send them photos. You've got to go down to the body shop. You've got to be without your car. You've got to be in this rental car for a while. Maybe you're complaining and irritated and frustrated about all of this because you're craving to be in your car permanently and you're not understanding this impermanence of this is just the way the world works. It's the universal truth of impermanence. So because the mind lacks the wisdom of these natural laws of existence, the mind gets shaken up with something like just a scratch on the car and it wants to be doing all the things that you want to be doing. And 
we then become very disgruntled because of it. And now, not only does it affect the condition of our mind, but now we go into work and we start being unskillful with our speech and our actions, or we come home and we talk to our life partner or our children or other people around us with unskillful speech. They weren't even involved in the scratch in the car, our coworkers and other people, our neighbors, but yet because the condition of our mind is affected, and we've allowed that to happen, now our unskillful speech and actions start causing all of this harm to other people and that harm just comes back to us. So when we can gain mental discipline and control over this, then we don't find that our mind is going to produce those unskillful speech and actions and we can have the control over the mind so that now we can just let it go and realize, okay, this is the universal truth of impermanence. I need to fix the car. I'm going to be without my car for a few days and I'll just move on and continue to do the things that I normally do. I'll continue to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with everyone around me. There's no reason for me to produce all this harmful speech and actions towards these other people. And let me just continue to maintain peacefulness and harmony in my life with all my relationships rather than allowing this little bit of impermanence to affect what's going on in all my other relationships. Thank you, sir. Uh, another question. Now, do enlightened beings have bodily sensations at all at any times? Uh, in particular, um, I can imagine a stream enterer or a once returner having them, but what about a non-returner or an arahant? An arahant doesn't have bodily sensations in terms of related to discontentedness. They're going to have bodily sensations in terms of itches or, you know, if they step on a nail, they're going to feel the pain of stepping on a nail, but they're not going to have any discontentedness because they've eliminated all craving, desire, attachment. So because there's no craving, desire, attachment that is producing discontentedness, there's not going to be any bodily sensations associated with discontentedness. But they'll still experience certain sensations unrelated to discontentedness. All those other stages of enlightenment and the jhanas and so on off the path, they're still going to experience that because there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind. It's not until you're an arahant or enlightened that all craving is eliminated and you're no longer going to experience discontentedness. Even a non-returner, which is the third stage of enlightenment, is going to still experience occasional discontentedness. So they're going to still have these bodily sensations. But by that point, the discontentedness is so minimal that a non-returner knows exactly why it's happening. They can observe the bodily sensations. They can cut it off and let it go. They can extinguish this really readily because they're so close to enlightenment. Thank you, sir. Manal has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Nick. Um, teacher David, I have a question regarding uh, mindfulness. Um, is a practitioner's development of awareness of mind or the practice of observing body, feelings, mental objects subject to their own karma? When we say the word karma, what we need to understand is it's cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. So if someone's able to 
see and observe these bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, and the mental objects, it is a result of their decisions that they've decided to deeply train in these teachings. And because they've chosen to deeply train in these teachings and they're aware of these bodily sensations and all the other aspects of the four foundations of mindfulness, because they've trained, then they have the ability to understand them and observe them and practice right mindfulness. So oftentimes the word gamma is described as punishment and rewards or some entity or some universe kind of punishing us and rewarding us. And that's not what the natural law of gamma is. But if you understand that everything we experience in life is a result of our decisions. So if we have the ability to observe bodily sensations, feelings, condition of mind and mental objects, that is a result of our decisions because we've chosen to learn, reflect and practice. So it is our gamma. It is the result of our decisions. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And um, just to understand better, would uh, someone's accumulation of unwholesome gamma be an impediment to practicing deeper in mindfulness? So again, anything that we've done, any decisions that we make, either wholesome or unwholesome, we're going to experience the results of that. So depending on our dedication, our determination, our diligence on this path to enlightenment, if we have dedication and diligence and we actively progress on the path, then we're going to experience the results of that. There's going to be progress and lots of progress. Whereas if we're complacent, if we're you know kind of lethargic and dull about our path, then the results of our decisions is that we're not going to progress as readily on this path. So everything we experience is a result of our decision. So there's nothing from our past that we can't overcome. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a gentleman who had murdered 999 people during his life. And he actually attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha. And I'm sure there's nobody alive today that we know about, and I'm sure there's nobody in this class that has killed 999 people. So if somebody during the lifetime of the Buddha can attain enlightenment having done those unwholesome things, then surely anybody who's in this class or anybody who's in the world today, if they apply dedication and determination and diligence to actively learning, reflecting, and practicing with the words of the Buddha, there's no reason why they wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. One of the benefits or one of the results of our decisions, one aspect of our wholesome gamma is actively seeking out the true teachings of the Buddha. He talks about this, that in order to get to enlightenment, you would have to have the true teachings from him that You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment if you were studying things that were being attributed to him that weren't actually his teachings because they would just make the path look very murky and gray. So one of the results of your decisions is by actively seeking out a teacher and resources and ability to learn with the words of the Buddha and instead of believing to learn, reflect and practice, this is improving the results of your decisions. This is improving your gamma that you now have a real opportunity to progress towards enlightenment because of your gamma. And there's no reason why anybody wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment now that you have access to these teachings and a teacher that can help you. Yes, thank you so much for walking me through that answer. Thank you. 
You're welcome. And one of the things I'd like to add to that is that a teacher can't guarantee that a student is going to attain enlightenment because everybody's starting at different points in terms of the pollution of their mind. And everybody's going to apply a different level, a different degree of dedication and diligence. So it wouldn't be possible to guarantee that someone is going to attain enlightenment. But what I'm sharing is that there's no reason why you can't if you're applying that dedication and diligence to actively learning and progressing on this path. Let's go to Miranda. Um, Yes, sir. On Facebook, Denise Davis asks, um, I have noticed that I seem to be having a clearer understanding of the teachings the more I study, practice, and meditate. Is this normal? Yes. As you continue to learn and grow, the mind starts clearing out gradually, slowly, but surely, and you'll be able to start seeing the path more and more clearly. Where when we first get started, it's like, whoa, there's just this bombardment of teachings and things to talk about and different resources and you're trying to get things underway you're just trying to get in the habit of meditating regularly and picking up the book regularly and someone's enlightenment isn't going to be determined about what they do right now today necessarily it's not just one decision it's stringing together consistency and ongoing practice where you're regularly coming to class, you're regularly picking up the book, you're regularly seeking guidance, you're regularly uh, meditating and doing this on a consistent ongoing basis. And the more that you do that on a consistent ongoing basis, the benefits accumulate where, you know, a month when you first start can seem like forever where once you get into this six months, a year, two years, a month is like a blink of an eye, but that month can actually produce a lot more benefit because early on it's like you're kind of stuck in the mud and you've got these boots on and you keep trying to pull your your legs out and you're trying to walk forward and you're just stuck in the mud where as you continue to walk you start getting on firmer and firmer ground and you're able to progress more readily after you get into this and you start stringing together a lot of ongoing consistent decisions and you've been studying now i think for about seven eight months nine months because you started in the last group learning program and this is your second time through so you're probably noticing a a fair amount of improvement to the condition of the mind in your life based on what you're learning and practicing thank you sir um also on facebook biplop asks sir in breathing mindfulness meditation can we mindfully investigate what is the origin of a thought is it wholesome or an unwholesome thought, then mindfully apply right effort to eliminate them? In meditation, using breathing mindfulness meditation, you shouldn't be trying to analyze your thoughts of whether they're wholesome or unwholesome. You shouldn't be observing them. You shouldn't be labeling them or anything like that. In the training of breathing mindfulness meditation, just whenever the mind is off the breath, you're cutting it off and letting it go and coming back to the breath. That's the training. Then in daily life, when you have an unwholesome thought, you can observe that with mindfulness and you cut that off and let it go. If you have a wholesome thought in daily life, you bring that into the mind, you encourage that you don't allow it to fade. So the way we train in meditation versus what we're doing in daily life is different. Much like an athlete, an athlete might be a swimmer, for example, 
but in training, they might be doing weightlifting, they might do cardiovascular training, they might do agility training and things like this, but then when they actually go do their professional sport, they might actually be swimming, completely different than what they're maybe doing in training. Same thing with us is we're training in a way that we're arising mindfulness awareness of mind, we're arising concentration and singleness of mind, and we're eliminating craving desire attachment. The way that we do that is focus on the breath. Whenever the mind is off the breath, any time it moves off the breath, you become aware of that and you cut it off and let it go. The goal in meditation isn't to eliminate thoughts. Even enlightened beings are going to have an occasional thought in meditation, but they're going to be aware of it very soon and they're going to be able to very easily let it go. And there's going to be these long gaps of quietness and stillness and peacefulness in the mind. When you first start, there's going to be much more bombardment and a lot of erroneous thoughts in the mind, but you're not trying to evaluate them. You're not trying to figure them out, observe them, label them or anything like that. Whenever the mind's off the breath, you cut it off and let it go. No matter what it is, just cut it off and let it go. That's in meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation. Then in daily life, when you see an unwholesome thought arise, you cut that off and let it go. When you see wholesome thoughts, like you're interested in practicing generosity or you feel this compassion or loving kindness coming into the mind, you bring that into the mind, you support that, you encourage that, you don't allow that to fade. So what we do in daily life is different than what we do in meditation. Thank you, sir. Um, also on YouTube, Susan asks, an arahant knows the first arrow and five remembrances, but no mental proliferation or conditioned reactions. They are burned up, is that correct? I'm not following the language that you're using there. It's not language that I use. If you could repeat that, Miranda, I'm not sure where that's coming from, but I'll try to kind of decipher it a little bit and take on a meaning that I understand. Um, she asks, an arahant knows the first arrow and five remembrances, but no mental proliferation or conditioned reactions are burned up. Is that correct? So an arahant isn't going to have conditioned reactions because there is no conditioning of mind in an arahant. An enlightened being has removed all conditioning, so the mind is unconditioned. They're not going to react to situations. They're going to respond with generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Those other things that you were explaining at the beginning, like the first arrow, the five remembrances, I'm not sure what you're referring to there. If you'd like to talk privately, you can send me a private message or something like that, and I can help you sort that out. It's not something that I am familiar with, but different people use different terminology for different things. But I think the heart of your question is about whether an enlightened being has conditioned reactions and no, they wouldn't because the mind is unconditioned. They're not going to react to things. Instead, they're going to have this generosity, loving kindness and wisdom, which is the three wholesome roots. So instead of functioning through craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, they're going to function through generosity, loving kindness and wisdom and now respond to situations rather than react with that conditioning. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Those are all the questions on Facebook and YouTube for right now. Okay. Anything from you, Nick? We're ready to move on, sir. All right. So let's talk about right concentration. This is the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. 
What the Buddha explains as part of the Eightfold Path is the results or the benefits or the byproduct of what you're going to experience as a result of putting together all the steps of the Eightfold Path. There's other aspects of his teachings where he describes more directly what is right concentration, but here in the Eightfold Path, he's explaining the results or what is going to be produced in the mind as a result of practicing the entire Eightfold Path. The way that he teaches is the Eightfold Path is the central core teaching. And he teaches to a certain level of detail in this central core teaching. And then he has all these other teachings that kind of plug into the Eightfold Path to further expand upon it for us so that we can get these other layers that we pull back more and more layers and we dig deeper and deeper into it. So what he chose to speak about here in Right Concentration is helping you to understand what's called the jhanas. The jhanas are what's referred to as meditative absorption. What this means is that when you are practicing the Eightfold Path really deeply, including right concentration, which includes meditation, then there'll be enough absorption in the mind of these teachings and of meditation that you'll start to experience these jhanas. This is a Pali word. There's only two real Pali words that I still use, which is jhana and gamma, because there's not a one word translation of these. What a jhana is, is it's a preliminary phase that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment. So there's these four preliminary phases that we refer to as the jhanas. There's the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And then after that, the mind goes to the first stage of enlightenment, second stage, third stage, and the fourth stage. The fourth stage is arahant. That's where the mind is actually enlightened. But the mind, it will experience these four preliminary phases called the jhanas, which are temporary. If you start experiencing these jhanas, the mind can actually regress out of there. So you need to continue to focus on progressing to get to that first stage of enlightenment where the mind won't regress from there. Essentially what the jhanas are is it's kind of like a light bulb flickering. If you ever turn on a light bulb and it flickered and flickered, flickered, flick, 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 and then eventually, boom, the light was on full. Well, as you're progressing through the Eightfold Path and you're putting together more and more of the path, when the mind starts experiencing these jhanas, you start experiencing these glimpses of what enlightenment is like. It might be a few minutes, can even be a few seconds, it can be a few hours, it can be a few days, where you get these little flickers where you experience this utter peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, where the mind is relaxed and calm, but yet alert and attentive. And these are temporary, that you'll experience them for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, but then the mind will ultimately end up with some discontentedness again at some point because the light's not fully on. The mind is not fully enlightened yet. So these jhanas that the Buddha talks about, he's actually explaining the various qualities of mind that you're going to experience as the mind's moving through these jhanas. And what this is an indication of is this is an indication that you're putting together the Eightfold Path really well in your daily life. And now as your mind starts experiencing these jhanas, this is a really good time to start focusing on what's called the 10 fetters. This is something we're going to talk about next week. Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the four stages of enlightenment 
and the ten fetters because it's the elimination of the ten fetters that moves the mind into the four stages of enlightenment. But here in right concentration, the Buddha is explaining to you what you're going to experience so that for your own personal growth, as you're progressing through these jhanas, you can have confirmation that you are experiencing these jhanas and things are headed in the right direction. And after I read this to you, then I'll explain to you about how to practice right concentration so that you can experience these qualities of mind that he's talking about. And what, monks, is right concentration? Here, a monk distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with a subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, which means unable to be upset or excited. Essentially, the mind is calm and serene. Mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness, he enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of the former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. So essentially what the mind's starting to do is it's starting to get rid of a lot of the conditioning that's keeping it experiencing these conditioned feelings. And you're starting to get these glimpses of what enlightenment is like, which is beyond pleasure and pain. You're no longer experiencing these conditioned feelings once the mind is enlightened. But here in the jhanas, you're getting kind of glimpses of what that's like at different times. So the mind will start to become relaxed and calm but yet attentive and alert as you're experiencing these jhanas. The way to practice right concentration is that you develop a daily meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation. I teach that on Wednesdays and here in Chiang Mai, I teach it as part of our regular in-person classes. And it's very important that you practice the meditation the way that the Buddha taught, that you just focus on the breath, when the mind's off the breath, you cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Realizing that you're never going to eliminate thoughts, but what you're trying to actually do is become more and more aware when there is a thought, and then more and more easily let it go and come back to the breath. Essentially what you're doing is you're training the mind to reside on the breath. The Buddha describes our breath in other parts of his teachings as this post or this pillar and there's these six animals that are tied to this post and pillar. There's a bird that's pulling to the sky. There's an alligator pulling to the river. There's a monkey pulling to the jungle, these kind of things. And as these wild animals are pulling and pulling and pulling and they get to the end of their rope, they keep getting yanked back to this post and this pillar. Eventually, over time, as they keep pulling and pulling and pulling, these animals just decide, okay, I'm going to stay here at this post and pillar. The animals essentially submit 
realizing that they can not leave that post and pillar. So that's what you're doing with breathing mindfulness meditation, that as the mind is pulling, you're yanking it back and yanking it back and yanking it back and yanking it back. And over a very consistent, ongoing basis over this long-term period of meditating, then the mind gets more and more willing to just sit at the breath. It essentially submits that it realizes that every time it moves off the breath, you keep yanking it back and eventually the mind will stay there on that breath for longer and longer periods of time and the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy more and more as it just sits there and focuses on the breath. You won't need anything else but just the breath. And of course, this takes a lot of training to get there, but as you put together more and more days, more and more sessions of doing this, you'll see the truth for yourself that it's working. So it's important that you practice meditation the way that the Buddha taught, even though you might see or hear other people doing it other ways. But if you do what the Buddha taught, who's the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of this path, he's the one who articulated what it takes to get to enlightenment. So if you do what he did, then you'll see the truth for yourself. And then there's loving kindness meditation as well, because while breathing mindfulness meditation is working on developing mindfulness and concentration while eliminating craving, desire, attachment, loving kindness meditation is there to help you to uh, cultivate this loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well while you're eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will. So by bringing in this loving kindness in your mind and meditation, then in your daily life, you're going to be more likely to practice something like right intention, right speech, and right action emanating from loving kindness, where you speak using those five factors of well-spoken speech. You can treat all beings with this active goodwill, this interest to see all beings be well. Sometimes when people practice loving kindness meditation, they think they're trying to change other people through their meditation. But in reality, what you're doing is you're actually transforming your own mind so that by you eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will in your own mind, now when you're in daily life, you can function with your intention, speech, and actions emanating from this loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. There's some other specialized meditations that are just needed on an as-needed basis that as students talk to us in personal guidance and things like this, we might share with you these other two specialized meditations. But these two of breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation are the two that you need. There's lots of other meditations that have come out since the Buddha's death. But if you focus on what the Buddha taught, then you can get very well developed in just these two forms of meditation, which is what you're going to need in order to transform the mind away from craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. And what you would like to build up to is gradually develop your practice to two to three sessions per day of 30 minutes or more per session. And wherever you start is where you start. If you're at one session for five minutes or you know, one session for 15 minutes, then that's where you start. But gradually build up where you create more and more space in your life to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. As you're developing your concentration through meditation, then what you also do is outside of meditation, you practice singleness of mind in your daily life. 
this is utterly important because part of what we potentially were exposed to or we learned growing up is this idea or this concept of multitasking. We're oftentimes encouraged to do more than one thing at a time. And if you understand the mind very well, you will understand that the mind can only do one thing at a time. It actually, what it's doing is it's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing. You're not actually doing two things at one time or three things at one time. So if you've ever spoken on the phone, watch TV, and you've eaten at the same time, your mind was actually rapidly cycling to all three of those things one after another. And you know this because when you get off the phone, you're not really quite sure 100% of what was actually discussed during that conversation because your mind wasn't practicing singleness of mind of just on that conversation. So now you might have to go back and kind of clean up some of the difficulties and unwholesome decisions that you were making by not being attentive in the phone call. Or if you were watching a TV program, you didn't really digest everything that was there and learn what you needed to learn. Or if you were eating, you didn't fully feel like you've really ate or digested the food because your mind was rapidly cycling through all of these things. So you should develop singleness of mind through meditation by focusing on the breath, but then you use those qualities in daily life to focus on just one thing at a time. Because if you're trying to focus on multiple things at a time, it would be very difficult to bring forth the wisdom of something like the five factors of well-spoken speech or right action or some of these other teachings. And this is why we end up getting ourselves into a lot of trouble is that we're rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing and we can't bring the full wisdom of what we're trying to practice and therefore we're making unwholesome decisions. But when you just do one thing at a time, if you're talking on the phone, you just talk on the phone. It might be actually just a five or 10 minute conversation because you're focused, you get done what you need to get done and you move on and then you don't have to come back and clean it up later. Whereas if your mind is rapidly cycling through all these things, you're not really listening, you're not really paying attention, you might be saying things that aren't really practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. This conversation might go longer than you really needed to and you end up wasting more time trying to do that than if you just practice singleness of mind. And what you'd like to do is train the mind to just do one thing at a time. That's what is going to ultimately allow you to bring forth all the wisdom of this entire path to enlightenment. This next slide that I'm sharing is essentially taking the words of the Buddha on the four jhanas and breaking it down so that you can see what he's describing in each individual jhana. And here he's describing what you'll experience in each individual jhana and also what you kind of need to be doing. This first jhana, in order to experience that, you need to be putting together all the other steps of the Eightfold Path, but also you'll start distancing yourself from trying to always please the senses. The senses are like the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. You'll start kind of distancing yourself from always seeking pleasure through the senses. There still will be this desire to have sensual input through the senses, but a person who's entering the first jhana will kind of start distancing themselves a bit from that and also distancing themselves from unwholesome mental states through practicing right mindfulness, awareness of mind, and applying right effort to eliminate unwholesome mental states as they arise. In that first jhana, you'll have developed a lot of the teachings of the Eightfold Path. So there's certain wisdom that's on board at that point. 
but there's this thinking and pondering that you're going to be doing as part of experiencing certain things in a different way where before we were on this path we were just plowing through the forest knocking down trees and burning up the forest where now getting into that first jhana you've got this wisdom on board you've been practicing to become this better human being and now when you encounter a certain situation there's this thinking and pondering that's going on you're kind of thinking like how do i practice here because in the past you would just blow through that situation and maybe not care where now with this new wisdom on board you're starting to think and ponder about the teachings and how do i apply them to this situation that's what the thinking and pondering is and then the mind is filled with this excitement and joy that comes into the mind and this is actually what people also call bliss they talk about the first jhana as having this ultimate bliss and some people mistake the first jhana as the mind is actually enlightened because they're unaware of these jhanas and what is actually experienced there so the experience that you experience when you're off the path to when you're experiencing this first jhana is like night and day so you might experience this ultimate bliss or this excitement and this joy that you've never experienced before you might get these little flickers and these glimpses of it where the mind is filled with this excitement and joy and just understand that the mind isn't enlightened there's still more work to do don't get attached or crave that excitement and joy it's kind of hard to not do that because you'll experience this in a way that you've never experienced before but just know that the mind is now moved into that first jhana and you need to keep your sights focused on the first stage of enlightenment so that the mind keeps progressing if you get bogged down into these jhanas just craving this excitement and joy that you experience then the mind will either get bogged down there or it'll regress out this second jhana the thinking and pondering starts to subside because you've now done a lot of that thinking and pondering applying the teachings in many different situations accumulating this wisdom so the thinking and pondering starts to subside there's this inner tranquility that occurs the mind becomes very calm and peaceful and then the buddha talks about this oneness of mind or this unification of mind that happens in the second jhana what this is is that in the unenlightened state when you're off this path and out of these jhanas there's the conscious mind and there's the subconscious mind and this subconscious mind is oftentimes highly polluted and oftentimes you can be in a conversation talking with somebody and then like the subconscious mind will just produce certain thoughts and you'll say something to somebody and you'll be like why did i say that that was not me that's not what i'm interested in saying and you'll just kind of say something off the cuff and you'll realize it was like the wrong thing to be saying in that situation and this is the subconscious mind bringing forth this pollution and producing certain unskillful conduct well once you move into the second jhana the mind becomes one there's this unification of the mind where there's no longer this conscious mind and this subconscious mind that you now have full awareness of the entire mind where when we're off the path we're not really aware of the subconscious mind it's just kind of there working and kind of tosses things up into the conscious mind every once in a while and we kind of cause difficulties and create unskillful situations because of that subconscious mind kind of tossing things into the conscious mind but now in the second jhana there's been this unification or this oneness of mind where you now have awareness of the entire mind 
and there's this concentration or singleness of mind that you've developed through meditation and through your daily practice and daily life. Now the thinking and pondering as you start moving out of the second jhana and towards the third jhana is completely eliminated because you've developed the wisdom that you need of this path. There's no more this constant thinking and pondering of whether you're making the right decisions or not. You just know that you're making the right decisions. And then there's this, still this excitement and joy. Then this third jhana, there's this fading away of excitement. And when we talk about excitement there, we're talking about these conditioned feelings. You're still going to start experiencing more and more of this joy, that this unconditioned joy where the mind is just always joyful. But you've got to be willing to let go of this temporary excitement or this temporary conditioned happiness in order to experience this permanent joy. So as you're training your mind more and more, there's this fading away of this conditioned excitement where the mind becomes imperturbable or unable to be upset or excited. You might inwardly be frustrated or irritated or annoyed, but it won't be outwardly upset or excited. People won't be able to observe that. Where other people will be utterly excited or sorry full or grieving, you'll just be more calm and content. But internally in the mind, there's still that internal struggle that's going on there. There's this calmness and this sereneness that you didn't have before because there's this mindfulness or this awareness of mind where the mind is now clearly aware of everything that's going on in the mind. And you're starting to experience more and more of this unconditioned joy. The peacefulness is starting to now come into the mind where there's this equanimity in this awareness of mind. Equanimity is this calmness and composure, this evenness of temper, even in difficult situations. You'll start noticing in situations where your mind got really shaken up in a difficult situation. Now the mind is more peaceful and steady and calm in these difficult situations. And there you can bring forth the wisdom in order to apply wise decision making rather than before when the mind was shaken up and you might have been making more and more unwise decisions and the situation got worse. Now with this equanimity, the mind can remain calm in difficult situations and then you can bring forth the wisdom to now make better and better decisions even in difficult situations. This fourth jhana is where the mind is now giving up this conditioned pleasure and this conditioned pain. There's still going to be discontentedness in the mind, but there's not this extremes. This has been tempered a bit where the mind has now come more into the middle and there's not these high swings and there's not these low lows. The mind comes more into the middle. And the Buddha describes this as fading away of the former gladness and sadness. And this is beyond pleasure and pain, still with equanimity and mindfulness, fully developed to fulfillment, where the mind is now fully aware, having mindfulness, and now there's this full equanimity in the mind. So this is an indication that the mind is now starting to put together the Eightfold Path, and it's time to start focusing more and more on the Ten Fetters. You might have gotten to a point where you were focusing on the Ten Fetters at different times in your practice, but now when you're starting to experience these jhanas, this is the time to really start focusing on the Ten Fetters because that's what's going to move you into the first stage of enlightenment and beyond. 
because again, you're not interested in getting bogged down in these jhanas because if you get into these jhanas, the mind can regress out of them if you became complacent for any reason. So you would still like to maintain your practice, continuing to be diligent. And someone who experiences the jhanas and knows that they experience the jhanas, oftentimes from that point forward, they are going to continue forward into the first stage of enlightenment because the experiences that they're having in the jhanas are, like the Buddha says, beyond pleasure and pain. And you know what you've been doing in order to get into those jhanas. And you have no doubt that the Buddhist teachings are indeed leading you to an improved condition of mind because you're seeing the observation of that through the improved qualities of mind. So you'll continue to move forward into the first stage of enlightenment. But there's some people who can start to experience some of these jhanas without realizing what they're doing if they don't deeply study these teachings or they don't have awareness. They can start experiencing these and then their mind can regress out of it. This is common that I'll hear from a student who's experienced this bliss and this joy 10 years ago and they haven't been able to get back to it since then and they're wondering what that was and why they can't get back to it. And it's because they were doing a couple of things that kind of got them to the point where they might have experienced the first jhana, but then they didn't know what that was and they didn't know how to continue to further awaken the mind, so the mind regressed out of it. By the time you get to these jhanas, these preliminary phases that the mind goes through, there's been a lot of work and development. At this point, you're not interested in turning around and going backwards for any reason. So just to kind of summarize, there's this right effort which is taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate certain wholesome qualities, taking the effort to do that. And then there's this mindfulness, which is kind of required in order for you to be able to do that. You need to have this awareness of mind and specifically the four foundations of mindfulness. With that awareness of mind of what's unwholesome and wholesome, now you can apply right effort. And you're developing your concentration in this step of the Eightfold Path called Right Concentration by practicing meditation in two to three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more, building up to that more and more, and practicing singleness of mind in daily life where you're just focusing on one thing at a time. And as you start experiencing these jhanas, that's where you know that the mind is starting to really start to progress closer and closer to that first stage of enlightenment, and you're starting to put together the pieces of the Eightfold Path. And this is that indication to you that things are going pretty well, but that's not the time to get arrogant or prideful or boastful. That's the time to keep applying your practice and now start focusing more and more on eliminating the 10 fetters to move into the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. So some of the teachings that you're going to need in order to experience this, and these are all teachings that are taught as part of this group learning program is to learn, reflect, and practice the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice, and focus on eliminating the 10 fetters. So these are teachings that we cover in the group learning program. We cover these and a whole lot more as you progress over the next six months. And next week, what I'm going to be discussing is the four stages of enlightenment and the 10 fetters to help you get an overview of those 
and then we'll actually start from the beginning of the book and now we're going to do the work week by week to help you build up your practice these first four weeks are to give you that overview but as you're progressing through this path and you're starting to see the truth in the teachings it's important that you never give up because oftentimes when the mind meets these struggles and these difficulties that the mind actually wants to give up it wants to become complacent because it doesn't meet the struggle it doesn't keep walking forward in fact being in a class like this that right now i've been teaching for about an hour and a half maybe that's a long time for you maybe you're not used to focusing and having concentration on one learning event for an hour and a half and that can be quite a challenge for you but part of learning in these classes is refining the mind not only gaining wisdom but actually learning in these classes and staying focused and attentive and actively learning for that hour and a half or two hours that's actually helping your mind as well because once or twice a week you're doing that and training the mind to not just watch a three minute five minute eight minute video on something but instead focus for a longer period of time this is part of your training so you can think about coming to these classes and reading the book and the meditation and all these things as part of your training that all these things are a comprehensive package and you're not interested in ever giving up no matter what challenges you might face that's why you have a community of other practitioners to reach out to that's part of this community and you have a teacher to reach out to to get help as well so where you find yourself experiencing struggles or difficulties just reach out for guidance and for help and there's somebody here to help you so i'll just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you might have on anything that I've discussed today or anything related to any other aspect of the Eightfold Path. Because remember, there's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And you'll need to know these really, really well. And as you develop on this path, you'll get to know them inside and out and they'll become first nature for you. But you've got to do that work in order to have that happen. So I'd like to open up to any questions related to today's class or anything else on this Eightfold Path. So just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. David, um, in regards to children and, and right concentration, I have an eight-year-old, as you know, and uh, with modern day, there's a lot of devices, there's a lot of stimulation, these sorts of things. So I try to train a uh, uh, my boy in, in singleness of mind, you know, like when he's eating just to eat, but, uh, continually he tries to, you know, he always talks with, uh, you know, food in his mouth. And I, 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 I say, Jackson, you know, don't, don't talk with food in your mouth. You could choke, you know, spit flies out. It's, it's not polite, you know, but it's like every 30 seconds, once a minute, and I was just looking for like guidance on that, and and and, and um, eventually I was wondering, when do you think if this would stop? Like when 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 would a child actually get it? Like how many times do they need to be restrained, told? You know. So every child's going to be different, and remember, it's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And you and I went through the same thing. We talked with food in our mouth many times. And oftentimes it's not until you start choking and you realize the problem of doing that. But 
continuing to provide him guidance like that is really helpful. One of the things that I do when Byline does that is, you know, I'll just kind of hold my finger up and I'll be like, I'm not listening to you until you finish that food. I'm not hearing anything you say. So it doesn't really make sense for you to talk with food in your mouth. And that's helped him. But still, every once in a while, he will try to talk with his food in his mouth. And sometimes, depending on what I'm doing, where I'm at in my meal or whatever, I might even get up and walk away. I'd be like, I'm not listening. You know, I'm going, taking my plates into the kitchen, finish eating. So you always do it with warmth and friendliness and politeness, but helping them to understand that you're not listening and you don't hear anything he says can show him like there's no purpose in you talking because I'm not listening when you have food in your mouth. So that can help, but it's still going to take several times of you reminding him to see that. And sometimes you might choose to not remind him and let him experience whatever he experiences. This is the challenge that we have as parents that if you're attached to your child, sometimes you're not interested in letting them fall down and trip over their feet in order to learn that lesson. And of course, you're not interested in your child being in harm's way or coming to any harm or anything like that. But where you can kind of allow things to happen where they do trip and fall, so to speak, based on their own decisions, then they can see their unwise decision much more clearly. So in certain situations, you might be able to do that and it will actually help them to learn because they see the results of their decisions and it didn't turn out well. Thank you, teacher. David, that's helpful. Appreciate the tips. You're welcome. Any other questions? There appears to be no more questions. That's all for today. All right. Well, I'll just end today's class with thanking all of you for joining for today's class and pleased that you've decided to continue to learn and grow in this path because as you develop more and more, you'll see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind will gradually improve. Next week, we're going to be exploring the four stages of enlightenment. Those are stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. I'm going to explain to you what these four stages are, what it takes to move through them, and how you can focus on that. And with the amount of content that I'm sharing over these first couple of weeks, these first four weeks, you're not going to be able to retain all of this and put this all into practice in these four weeks. That's why this program is seven months long. That's why it's called Developing a Life Practice, that I'm providing you here in four weeks a big dose of information to help you understand it from a whole but then this is why students go through this program more than once that's why you have ways to reach out for help so even though you're getting you know a lot of information in each one of these classes don't feel like you need to retain all of that right away or you need to run off and start practicing this right away but also don't allow the mind to be complacent either and keep learning and actively learning. Everything that I've shared with you up to this point has been part of chapter four and five in this first book, volume one. What I'm gonna share with you next Sunday is part of chapter three of this book. And remember, after next week, we're then gonna start at chapter one and we're gonna gradually progress through one, two, three, four, five, and so forth and so on, all the way through the book. So you can gradually learn this, and you're probably going to need to hear teachings on the Eightfold Path, which includes the Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, and all the other connected teachings. You're going to need to learn all of these things multiple times in class, in the book, and things like this before you really are retaining it and then actively practicing it on a consistent, ongoing basis. So don't 
set the expectation for yourself that just because you've heard it in class, you should be able to go out and practice it right away because that's not how this works at all. On Wednesday, I'm going to be doing part three of our four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. We're going to be coming together and actually meditating together as a group. Here, you can join at the same time, nine o'clock Thai time, in all the different places that we distribute content. You can even watch this on the replay and meditate along with us if you're not able to make it to Wednesday's class because you would like to build up your practice to that two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. So thank you all for joining today's class. I really appreciate your dedication to learning and practicing these teachings. This is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. Because as you improve the condition of your mind, you're going to benefit from that. And because you're causing less harm in the world, the people around you are going to benefit from that as well. Which means all of humanity benefits when each one of us focus on developing our own life practice. So thank you for your dedication and diligence to keep learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.